0: So I have a confession to make. I am terrible at history. Like really, really bad. Now I remember things happening, but don't ask me when they happened because I will not know. This applies to US history. I'm the absolute worst. This applies to church history. Brother Sloniker, I apologize. I tried my best, I promise. Um, This applies to my family history. I'm constantly asking my mother who people are, but nothing makes me feel worse than when I can't remember when my kids' big moments happened. Now, I know that most of you guys have not experienced this personally yet, but I promise you it's a thing. Maybe you've seen your mom or your grandma do it, but mothers love to sit around and remember stuff. And most of the time, they can remember the exact moment that their babies babbled their first word and when they tried solid food for the first time. And oh, don't you dare forget when they tinkled on the potty for the very first time. (laughs) And I'm over here just trying to remember if my son put on clean socks this morning. But there is one moment that I will never forget. It is locked in. So because it wouldn't be a proper DeFazio sermon without one, how about a Claire story, everybody? (laughs) Yeah. So Claire was the answer to a lot of prayer. And as most of you know, the culmination of several years of sorrow for Michael and I. So as you might imagine, all of her big moments were pretty darn special, even if I can't remember when they happened. So, yes, her first word was dada, followed shortly thereafter by Bonhoeffer. Uh huh. Oh, and he wanted me to assure you that is coffee in his hand. I promise. That is coffee in his hand. Okay. Uh, her, first, her first food was avocado. She is a Californian. And we thought that everything that she did meant that she was totally exceptional and completely brilliant. Turns out she's actually only average intelligence, but <laughs> we think that's awesome too. We were and are super, super into that kid if you haven't picked that up. But there was one thing about her that drove us a little crazy. The little booger wouldn't move. Now, if you know Claire now, you know that she is an observer. She likes to sit back and kind of get a read on the room, see who all's there but just kind of ease her way in. And she was the exact same way as an infant. She was perfectly content to just sit and watch. She wasn't too worried about getting into the action because she knew that sooner or later, the party would come to her, right? And we didn't really worry about it either. Even though all of the other babies her age were crawling all over the place, we knew that she would move when she was ready. We just chalked it up to the fact that she was extremely verbal, which my mom always said she came by naturally, whatever that means. (laughs) But yeah, it's true. She was just so concentrated on building her vocabulary that she couldn't focus on mobility too. No big deal. Except when all the other babies went from crawling to walking and Claire was just still sitting, it became a big deal. So when she hit the 11 month mark with no action, we decided to pull out all the stops. So we'd sit her in the middle of the floor and we'd move all of her toys to the perimeter of the room. She didn't care. We'd sit her down for some lunch but we'd put her food several paces away. She waited us out. Finally, one day I was completely out of ideas and I'd hit my limit so I did what any reasonable adult would do. I begged. I cried, I pleaded with my one-year-old child. I said, you have got to do this, please. I know that your life is beautiful and perfect and everything you need has been given to you on a silver platter and you know that you're loved and cared for and you probably think to change anything now would be absolutely crazy but I am telling you, when you start to move, it'll be a whole new world. Eh. So completely exasperated, I collapse on the floor. I look up at the ceiling and the next thing I know, there was a baby in my face. She moved. She got up on her own two little knees and she crawled over to see if her lunatic of a mother was okay. And I could not help myself. I screamed, are you kidding me? Which of course scared the living daylights out of our child. And she did not crawl again for another two months, but we knew that she could. And we knew that she would. And now it was time to get her to walk. So as Isaac said last week, Randy kicked us off in a new series on the book of Ephesians called Sit, Walk, Stand, which is a nod to Watchman Nee's book of the same name. And we learned that the first three chapters of Ephesians are a place where God reveals to us the full plan for the Christian experience. We sit with Christ Jesus in the heavenly realms as God sings over us, reminding us of our value and our place near the Father. And we sit with Christ Jesus and we reflect as Paul's words wash over us, reminding us that Christ rules over all, that he is all powerful, that he is alive and well. Jesus is triumphant. And so this morning, as we move into chapters four and five, we're going to find out how we can participate in that triumph. Now, Paul has a lot to say on this subject. In fact, there's enough here for several series, if I'm being honest. So I encourage you to use some of your own personal devotional time to read these pages and pour over these words because they're important. Now this morning, we're going to look at several key sections and quite a few verses. So I want you to have your Bibles out and ready. We're about to find out what our role in all of this is. And we're going to start at the top. So Ephesians 4 verse 1, Paul says this, Therefore I... The prisoner of the Lord implore you, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Paul is pleading with his readers here. He is begging them to move. And immediately we see this shift. In Paul's writing, he turns from exposition in the first half of his letter to exhortation in the second half. From what God has already done to what we must now do. Or as Stott puts it, Paul moves from mind-stretching theology down to the down-to-earth concrete implications of everyday living. He moves from doctrine to duty. Now, you know, sometimes the most... A fun part, I think, of putting a sermon together is coming up with a really creative, catchy, dominant thought, right? But the fact of the matter is, I don't think there is anything more creative or memorable or applicable than what Paul has already said right here. We must walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Period. But before I get into the why this morning, I want to clarify... Um, Nope, that's what I want to clarify. Before I get into the how, I want to clarify the why. Why do we walk in the first place? I think this is important. Because, you know, Kenny Bowles taught us that the Christian doesn't bear fruit as a requirement for admission into the kingdom of God. But as a result of intimate union with that king. And I think that's the same reason we walk. We don't walk in order to pass the test. We don't walk to make sure that we don't get kicked out. We walk because we've received every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 1.3 We walk because we've been raised from death to life. Ephesians 2.6. We walk because we've been set apart to do good work. Ephesians 2.10. We walk because we're so filled with the spirit. We can no longer sit still. This is why. So what about the how? We know we're ready to move. But we need to make sure that we're moving in the right direction. Right? So how do we ensure that we're walking in a manner worthy of our calling? Well, The first thing he tells us here is we have to walk... In unity so continuing in Ephesians chapter 4 this is what Paul says be completely humble and gentle be patient bearing with one another in love make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord one faith one baptism one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all jump down to verse 11 Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, I know that probably most of you, if not all of you, have been in a situation before where you've been placed in a group that we'll say just didn't really work for you. Maybe you've had a teammate or a bandmate or a study mate or a roommate and they didn't carry their weight or you just didn't really care for them all that much or you just didn't see eye to eye. And in those moments, we like to think to ourselves, man, this would be a whole lot easier if I could just do this on my own or if I didn't have to share or, you know, I just think solitary confinement has gotten a bad rap. (laughs) And you know what? You're not wrong. In those moments, it would most definitely be easier to do it on our own. Easier, but not better. Paul has a lot to say about you being unified in this passage, and his message is pretty clear. Part of becoming a mature follower of Christ, part of walking in a manner worthy of our calling is to walk in unity. I mean, look at some of the stuff he says here. He starts out with be humble, gentle, and patient. I like how Peterson puts it in his book. Unity comes without arrogance or harshness or hurry. In other words, watch your tood, watch your words, and slow the heck down. Unity is a beautiful thing, but it's also really complex. Not something that can be microwaved. We're making a lifelong commitment here. He goes on to say that it comes with love. And this is the kind of love where we stick it out because we care more about one another than we do about ourselves. Philippians 2 kind of love. He then says you can't conjure up this kind of unity. But in verse 3 it tells us that this is a gift from the spirit. We already have it in us. No, we cannot manufacture it, but we do have to maintain it. And then speaking of gifts, man, there's a whole mess of them in verse 11, isn't there? And if it seems like the differences in these gifts would actually lend itself more towards separating us off than bringing us together we 've completely missed the point because look at verses twelve and thirteen These gifts aren 't for us; they are given to us, but it 's not about us we 're supposed to use these gifts for the church to make sure that together nobody gets left behind. We all reach unity in the fullness of Christ. Remember first corinthians twelve we 've all heard that example. The body of Christ is made up of many different parts, but together we make one body. If we don't band together, we won't get the job done. That's what he's saying. It's time we recognize that one of the greatest gifts God has given us is actually our diversity. Because everything sanctified about us that is different is precisely what makes us the same. And if that's not beautiful enough, he finishes this section by telling us that our unity is going to keep us out of trouble. Can I get an amen? When we come together as mature followers of Christ, we look out for one another and suddenly we're a lot less susceptible to the world's cunning and deceit. We've got each other's backs. That is good news. So we become complete in unity. We become capable in unity. We become competent, cooperative. We become comforters and cheerleaders. We become comrades in unity. And all of this is incredible, but it's not even the most important part of this passage. I know there are probably some professors in this room who thought I was plum crazy when I skipped verses 4 through 6. But I was just saving the best for last. Notice anything in those verses, 4 through 6? Sure you do. Paul repeats the word one over and over and over again. So clearly he's emphasizing oneness, unity. We already know that. But did you notice how many times he said the word one? Because Paul just slipped a secret code. The code for completion, for perfection, because he said the word seven times. What does this mean? Simply put, oneness wins. It wins everything. It's important because we realize all of a sudden we're not just examining our own unity here. Paul is reminding us of the unity of the Trinity, One spirit, one Lord, one God. So yeah, we may think that unity among believers is difficult or frustrating or maybe even impossible with some of the folks we know. But we need to be encouraged this morning. Because we are not walking blind here. The perfect example of unity goes before us. And when Jesus prayed for us in John chapter 17, he prayed that we would not only see that, but that we would achieve it. He said, I have given them the glory that you have given me. That they may be one as we are one. I in them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. So it all comes down to this. God's people are to be unified because God himself is unified. Be unified because God is unified. This means you need to mend your broken fences. Or better yet, just tear all the fences down and move forward without any barriers at all. Encourage one another in your walk. Celebrate your differences. Look at every single human being in no other light than the fact that they are created in the image of God. And remember that you are too. Be unified. As God is unified. So in order to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, we need to walk together. We've got that, but Paul's not done with us yet. Another key to walking in a manner worthy of your calling is to walk with conviction. Paul devotes this next section of his letter to correcting some bad behavior. He says this in verses 21 through 24, and I'm totally paraphrasing here. You were taught in accordance with the truth. That's Jesus. So it's time to take off your old self that's completely corrupt and put on your new self that's righteous and holy and then he goes on to make this list, and he talks about all of these behaviors that need to be removed so that holy habits can come in and take root. And then he gives us some really, really good reasons why these changes need to happen now. For example, verse 25. Paul says, stop lying. Instead, speak the truth. Why? For the sake of unity. Nef said Paul, we already know how you feel about unity. Okay, verses 26 and 27. Don't sin in your anger. Instead, learn how to resolve your conflict because Satan, good reason. Okay, verses 28, do not steal, work for things with your own hands so that you can then share what you earned fair and square. Verse 29 and 30, don't speak words that harm, speak words that build up because it'll bless our community and not only that, it blesses the Holy Spirit. And Paul goes on like this for 22 more verses, calling out behaviors that do not coincide with a worthy walk. But do you know what I love most about this list? It's not just a bunch of commands. Don't do this. Do that. No, he gives us these reasons, these motivations, these whys. Did anybody else in here grow up with a because I said so, mom? Yeah, me too. Nothing made me battier than when we'd get the whole, you need to go clean your room right now. Why can't I wait till I finish the show? Because I said so. Oh, Hey mom, can I go outside and play? No. Why? Because I said so. It's time to get dressed for church. Well, should I wear dress or pants? Because I said so. Now, I try not to do this to my own kids because scripture is very clear. Parents are not supposed to exasperate their children. We're going to get to that in Ephesians chapter 6. But I do have to tell you, being on this side of the catchphrase, sometimes because I said so, is actually quite sufficient answer because I said so can mean because I'm older because I said so can mean because I'm wiser because I have your best interest in hand because I'm the authority in your life. Now I could explain the why to my kids every single time, but they're three and six. So chances are most of the time they're not going to get it anyway. Sometimes because I said so is all the answer they need. So yeah, I, um, I appreciate Paul's efforts here in providing us these reasons. It is certainly motivating. But I gotta say, if we truly believe that God is all-knowing, and we truly believe that God is all-powerful, and we truly believe that he has our best interest in hand and that he really is a good, good father, then we do what he said to do because he said so. Because what we believe Should affect how we behave So I want you to be really honest with yourself this morning Are there things in your life that need to be done away with So that holy habits can come in and take root Maybe your vocabulary needs an overhaul Maybe you've been reading some things or watching some things that are consuming your thoughts And they're changing who you are and I don't mean for the better Maybe you're angry And if anyone knew what was done to you or said to you, they wouldn't blame you for being angry. But if you're gonna advertise yourself as a person who's been restored with a story that's been redeemed, then it's time to make that a reality. Unforgiveness, inappropriate jokes, greed, idolatry, there is something in here for everyone. So again, be honest with yourself. Are you walking in a manner worthy of your calling? Because if the answer is no, Get some accountability remember we've got each other's backs and then start the process of transformation and begin walking with conviction instead of contradiction god's people should be unified as god himself is unified and what we believe should affect how we behave and we make these commitments not only for our own benefit But we make these changes, we adopt new behaviors, we walk in the light so that our life can be a benefit to everyone else in this room, everyone in our church, everyone in our community, but also so that our life can benefit everyone outside of those parameters as well. Paul has called us to walk with conviction, in unity, because we also need to walk with urgency. Look at Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15. It says this. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now these words are definitely words of warning, reminding us to guard our steps. But these are also words reminding us that we have an opportunity To make a difference in the steps of other people as well. The days are evil. The days are also few. And I think what Paul is doing here is he's urging us. He is urging us to use our Romans 12 life. Remember that one? Our everyday, ordinary life. Our sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. And to give it to God as an offering. Something that he can use. And Watchman Nee echoes this call in his book. He says this, For while it's true that we are a heavenly people, it's no use to just talk of a distant heaven unless we bring heavenliness into our dwellings and offices, into our shops and kitchens, and practice it there. It will be without meaning. The fact is, you and I rub elbows with people every single day who do not know what we know. We know that God is the giver of life. We know that he is protector, forgiver, lover of our souls. But can I tell you, it's not enough to just know that God is good. Our lives have to show evidence of that goodness. Because if they don't see that, they will not believe this. So where does Paul suggest that we start? Where they're going to see it the most. At home and at work. Now, I know what some of you are thinking right now, especially the girls in the room. Oh, goody, Ephesians 5. I've been waiting for this moment. Here we go. Men, take control. Women, give up your will to live. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I assure you, that is not what I'm about to say. You might have guessed that. (laughs) But hey, I get it. Michael and I, okay, when we were first married, we made so many Ephesians 5 jokes. It was ridiculous. (laughs) Actually, Michael made a lot of Ephesians 5 jokes. <laughs> and he laughed at those Ephesians 5 jokes. And I just prayed for the salvation of our marriage. That's what I did. Um, no, I'm totally kidding. Okay, suffice it to say, we have learned a few things about Ephesians 5 over the years. And I want to share some of those insights with you. But before I do that, let me say this. I would be very remiss if I did not say this. There is absolutely something to be said about the husband taking the lead. And I would be more than happy to talk with you more about what that looks like in practice and why it's absolutely imperative if you are going to have a happy, healthy, and holy home. For our time here, there is a bigger picture going on with Ephesians 5. So I'm going to give that its due. The first thing I want you to notice is this. This is not a brand new conversation starting in verse 21. This is actually a continuation of a really long plea. What Paul is asking of the people. He says, we need to speak to one another with Psalms from the spirit, make music from our hearts, give thanks to the father and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For example, wives submit to your husbands out of honor for the Lord and husbands love your wives so much. You'd give up your life for her just like Christ did for the church. Do you see how this is just all one big statement? There's no separation here. And he's going to go on and he's going to talk about children obeying your parents and employees respecting your employers. And none of this has anything to do with pecking order. But everything to do with honoring Christ. Second thing, Paul's speech on husbands, wives, etc. This is not a tangent. This is not a soapbox. And this is not completely from left field. It's more like fourth verse, same as the first. Because see, in Ephesians chapter 1, heaven and earth were unified. In Ephesians chapter 2, Jew and Gentile were unified. In Ephesians chapter 4, the church was unified. Ephesians chapter 5, husband and wife are now unified. Unity, oneness, maturity. Clearly this matters. And what I think Paul may be saying here is this, and Nese certainly says this in his book. The unity of Christ in the church is not something that people on the outside are necessarily going to be privy to, but we can take our relationships to the streets. Relationships that are lived out, not in order so that we can make everybody around us more pleasant to ourselves, but so that we can make each other more pleasant to God. So ladies, shock your non-Christian friends by choosing to submit to your husbands. Husbands, call your buddies to the carpet and challenge them to replace dominance with love. Children, obey your parents, although it will never be the popular choice. Parents, love your children, guide them, instruct them, do not shame them. Employees work with sincerity and employers serve. And then every single one of you get ready for people to ask you why. George Washington Carver is often quoted as saying, when we do common things in an uncommon way, We command the attention of the world. And I think that sounds a whole lot like the way Jesus ended his prayer in John chapter 17. And then the world will know. When we conduct our marriage under the Lordship of Christ, when we conduct our parenting under the Lordship of Christ, when we conduct our employment under the Lordship of Christ, when we conduct our lives under the Lordship of Christ, the world will know. We cannot just walk through this life waiting to see what all we might get out of it. Though we are certainly blessed and we will get quite a lot. No, we walk in unity and with conviction and with urgency because we walk for what might yet be redeemed. That's why. Uh, It only took Claire a few more months before she decided that it was time to take her first steps. And the reason why this date is locked into my memory over and above any other date is because it was my birthday. Now Claire had been sitting for a very long time. And in that time, she had been watching and listening and learning by example. And she had learned that we would always come to her in her place of rest and shower our love on her. But she had also learned that wherever she moved, our love would follow. Claire also came to find out that she really liked sharing that love with other people. But to do that well, she needed to walk. And so on August 26, 2011, she gave me the absolute best gift anyone could. She toddled to me, arms outstretched, and delivered a birthday hug. And I lost my mind. (laughs) And we celebrated so big. This was a moment to remember. Now, some of you may be feeling a little bit intimidated by this calling on your life, this calling to walk in unity and with conviction and with such urgency. It maybe feels impossible. I don't know. But let me just say this. Don't forget what Paul has told us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. God has given us great power, the same power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. So you may think that you don't know how to walk, but you've been sitting. And as you have sat, you have listened, and you have watched, and you have learned, and you know that where you move, Jesus' love and his power will follow you. Now, all of us need to remain in the posture of sitting, because it's there that we'll be reminded of Christ's triumph, and we'll be refueled to be a part of that victory, But even as we sit, we must yet move because we cannot know all of Ephesians 1 through 3 and do nothing in response to 4 through 6. Our faith is relying upon our movement. The renewal of the church is counting on our progress and the lost in our lives are seeking their salvation in our very steps. So respond to what you know. This is your moment. Squash your status quo. Do not leave things the way they are. Move forward and pray for the redemption of the world. This is our calling. As unified, convicted, purposeful, and power-filled believers, we must walk. Good, job. Oh, oh, good you job. Good job. Here we go. Okay, let's try again. What was mommy. Mm-hmm. Mommy. Mommy. Go see her. Hey. Yeah, there you go. Good job, on, baby. baby. Good <laughs>